Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Trish, your bartender, and I'm Sloan, your crime tender. And today we are doing the case of David Koresh. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that name, think Waco, and maybe it'll ring some bells. If not, once we get into it, you will probably know what this case is. <laughs> yes. So. This one's probably going to be a long one, but it is going to be interesting. So, without further ado, we'll kick you off to the episode. with your bartender Trish and today I'm going to be doing what I'm just calling a watermelon mango lemonade and this is one like I said we're clearing out our liquor closet and so um I was like "Eh, this could be interesting together and I'm slightly obsessed with it it is really <laughs> it's also starting to feel like chopped the bartender version. Pretty much. <laughs> We're like, Let, let's piece this together with this. Maybe it'll turn out well, maybe it won't. <laughs> but what we did was we took the salty watermelon old smoky whiskey, which, as you know, is a like little hidden gem of mine. And I used two ounces of that. And then I used, you can use an ounce or an ounce and a half. It really doesn't matter. It depends on how much you want the mango to pull through for this. But I think for the recording, I did an ounce and a half of the mango Malibu. And then I just topped it with with um, lemonade. And... I think what I'm liking about this is really you can make it taste pretty much as alcoholic as you want it to, depending on what, like how much lemonade you add. I will say I didn't think about this, but if you kind of want to make it like a sparkling lemonade, you could throw some Sprite on top even, and I feel like that would really taste good as well. But... He said, we're clearing out our liquor cabinet and this kind of concoction just came to me and I, I'm really liking it. So definitely test it out. Let us know what you think. If you have any ideas, you've watched our videos, you know, <laughs> hopefully you've watched our videos and that you know kind of what's in our liquor cabinet. Maybe give us a, some ideas and uh, yeah, that being said, we'll kick you off to the episode. David Koresh was born Vernon Wayne Howell on August 17, 1959 in Houston, Texas. For the sake of everybody's sanity, I'm going to refer to him as David throughout all of this, just because it's a little bit easier than swapping once he changes his name. 
Also, pardon me. I feel like I'm already out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> My lungs are definitely still recuperate, uh, recovering from having COVID. <clears throat> Ooh. Anyways, all right. So, his mother, Bonnie Sue Clark, was 14 years old at the time she was impregnated by Bobby Wayne Howell, who was at least 19 years old at that time. And yes, this was the 1950s, 60s. I was going to say this. But still, she was 14 and he was 19. And pretty much as soon as he found out she was pregnant, he left her to raise their son alone so he could be with his new girlfriend instead of his new family. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. David would finally meet his father when he was 17 years old, but that didn't go well, or at least the relationship didn't stick. And the way that he found him was he finally got in contact with his paternal grandmother, and he, like, built a relationship with her, and she was like, all right, I think you're ready to meet your father. And so he came over one day, and she called her son over to meet his son, and they got together, and he was just pretty much like, you know, I've always been good at X, Y, and Z, and now that I know who you are and know what you're good at, now I know where I get those things from. And what I mean by that, like, he was interested in carpentry and rock and roll and playing guitar and things like that. We'll get into more detail about that. But those were the things that he realized that he inherited from his father, and he kind of hoped that he could build a relationship from that with his dad, and his dad was just kind of like, cool, we met. (laughs) I don't want anything to do with you still. And that was that. So, back to the beginning. Bonnie, who was 14, like I said, and a high school dropout and now a single mother to a newborn baby, became involved with a violent alcoholic. Their relationship progressed very quickly, and they moved in together almost immediately. And in 1963, Bonnie moved away with her boyfriend, leaving her four-year-old son with her mother, Erlene Clark who at the time had two more children of her own, a daughter, Sharon, and a son, Kenneth, both younger than David. So she had a house full. Yeah. Between her two children and her grandchild, all three toddling around, growing up together, she had a full house. It sounds like it. according According to them, David was a very bright, precocious child who grew up calling his grandmother Mama, But her husband was never affectionate with David. And Mama said, you know, that was average for the time period. Uh, Parents weren't really expected to be affectionate with their children, especially the dads. The dads were really just expected to dealt with them in discipline. And so that's kind of what his step-grandfather did. He was the disciplinarian. But that was the extent of their relationship. Yeah. When David was seven years old, Bonnie returned home, married, and with another son. During her absence, Bonnie left her alcoholic boyfriend, married a carpenter named Roy Halderman, and had a son with Roy in 1966, the year before she returned home. So this is another newborn baby she's walking in the home with. (laughs) Sharon, his aunt slash sister, said there were many happy visits between the families, but they usually ended sadly with David begging to come home with Mama. Sharon remembers one time they were driving away, only to look back and see David peddling as hard as he could after them with tears streaming down his face. Oh. I know. I know. It breaks your heart. It breaks my heart. 
David would later describe his childhood as lonely, and he was diagnosed with dyslexia and was a poor all-around student, which led to David being put in special education classes. He was nicknamed Bernie by fellow classmates. David ended up dropping out of school during his junior year of high school to take a carpentry job. David saved his money to pay for the down payment on a new Silverado pickup truck. It was black with red velour in interior, and he kept it fully stocked with rock and roll cassettes, Van Halen, Aerosmith, Eric Clapton, and the like. Like I said, he was very obsessed with rock and roll music, and he was very into that vibe. I found one source that said he even moved to LA for a time and tried to be a rock star, but I couldn't really find where that fit in with his timeline. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's definitely true that he loved playing his guitar and he used it to get girls. <laughs> and the truck was another tool for him to get attention from women and girls. Yeah. David got really into bodybuilding at this point in his life, pumping up his biceps to the point where they almost looked too big on his lean frame. Y'all, if you're gonna go to the gym, you have to do it all. I love a good leg day more than anybody. That's all I ever wanna do. I hate doing upper body day. But you gotta even it out, otherwise you're gonna look weird. Yep. You gotta focus on it all. But that didn't keep him from getting the ladies, even though he looked a little odd. <laughs> well, what a white man thing. Debbie Owens, then 16 and working as a waitress, counted herself lucky to be dating David. I wouldn't go that far, ma'am. He was a typical teenager, a rocker who carried his guitar wherever he went. And when Debbie wasn't working, she hung out at the community pool in a mogul home subdivision. And this is where David would set up camp. He would set up his amp and practice for hours, usually drawing a crowd. And this was like one of those, you know, neighborhood pool spots, so everybody was there. Debbie said the most striking thing about David was the effect he had on younger boys, even at that age. A funny little bit about Debbie and David's relationship is in the seven months they dated, not once did he talk about Bibles, the Bible, or religion. And that's funny if you know where we're going with this. Right. <laughs> when David was 19, he started seeing a 15-year-old girl, which is illegal, by the way. A while, bit. While he was still dating Debbie. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. The girl, quote, unquote, wound up pregnant. I wonder how that happened. She fell pregnant. An immaculate conception. Oh, yeah, that that happened once, I guess. <laughs> but she wound up pregnant by born-again Christian David. The girl's father refused to allow him to marry his pregnant lover, and David moved back to live in Chandler, Texas, and began going to the Tyler Seventh-day Adventist Church with his sister Sharon. And this breakup, or whatever you want to call it, absolutely devastated him. All he wanted was to be there for his girl and his baby, but her family absolutely forbid him having anything to do with her or his child. And that wrecked him. I'm sure. Sharon said he was going through a chastising, seeking atonement for the guilt he felt over his sexual appetite, he told her, I'm having a hard time keeping these thoughts out of my head. Sounds like you're a teenager, dude. And you, you are at this point. 
the end of his teenagerhood, but still a teenager. The Tyler congregation was delighted to have a young, apparently fallen away member return to his faith. When members learned that David was out of work, they ran to help him. Oh, God. Harriet Phelps, an elderly woman whose sons were grown, she offered him a room in her house in exchange for work around the farm. He, of course, took her up on that. Bob Bachman, an elder of the church, and his wife Maggie befriended David, and Bob said that the young man seemed to be burning with guilt over his past sex life and resentment that he had not been permitted to marry his ex-girlfriend. <laughs> Bob also claims that David professed to having intense feelings of guilt over his lifelong devotion to playing rock and roll. He wouldn't even touch his guitar at some points. David was really buying into the satanic panic of this time period, believing that the rock music was influencing his soul to the devil. So. Alright, dude. (laughs) Right. In a church with strict moral values, the reformed David suddenly became everyone's judge. Especially when it came to the conduct of women. Adding to the tension was the fact that he seemed able to command the attention of younger members of the church. And whatever his feelings of sexual guilt, he used the church to develop relationships with women, both platonic and sexual. Maggie, remember her, Bob's wife, she said that he alluded that he was attracted to her, even though she was much older than him. She said he would speak to her for hours about his childhood, often tearfully recounting physical abuse. Once, he showed her a pattern of burn scars on one leg that he said were caused when he was forced to kneel on a heat register. Okay. So he knows how to he knows how to pull on the heartstrings. Yeah. And he's very charismatic too, which is problematic. Sharon believes that this period was the last best chance for anyone to have inter- interrupted Vernon Howell's transformation into David Koresh. His life might have turned out differently had David not been captivated captivated by a powerful series of revival meetings sponsored by the church. These meetings were called Revelation Seminars and were conducted by an evangelist, Jim Gilley, of Arlington, Texas. They featured dramatic, even frightening images in a multimedia portrayal of Armageddon. Jim, who still presents his prophecy panorama in the United States and abroad to this day, (laughs) is a rousing speaker and his video representation of the apocalypse is foretold in the book of Revelation featuring earthquakes, pestilence and religious persecutions was combined with a video of current events that seemed to point towards the imminent millennium. We went every night of the week, Sharon said. He couldn't stop talking about the details which seemed to bring all his years of Bible study into focus. He felt he could expand on Jim's teachings. Jim said that David even approached him one night and offered to reorganize the show and change its message, but Jim rejected the offer. David said the missing piece in Jim's message was the seventh seal, something that could be opened only by a new prophet. The seven seals, as described in the book of Revelation, bind a scroll held in God's right hand that prophesies the calamities that precede the apocalypse. Sharon said David was convinced that it was time to have a new prophet and a new light in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and that he quite possibly could be that person. Of course he could be. Of course. He tried hard to bring this message to the Tyler congregation, but at that point, they had all had their fill of him. 
And I read in some sources that he was kicked out of the church, and then I read that he left the church. So that part's up for debate. Either way, he le- he's gone. No more right. of this church. Fast forward to 1981. David was 21, 22 at this time. He moved to Waco, Texas, where he joined Branch Davidians. This is where David found his niche in an isolated and insular group that was willing to accept his claim of divine inspiration. He was very active in the church from the get, playing guitar and singing at church services, and this was all at the Mount Carmel Center, a.k.a. the Waco headquarters. So, if you do not know about the Branch Davidians, fear not, I am going to tell you all about it, (laughs) because there is a history to this. And you kind of have to know the history to understand how this came about. Yeah. So the Branch Davidians are an apocalyptic new religious movement founded in 1955 by Benjamin Roden. They regard themselves as a continuation of the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, which was established by Victor Hutev in 1935. Victor, a Bulgarian immigrant and a Seventh-day Adventist, wrote a series of tracts entitled The Shepherd's Rod, which called for the reform of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. After his ideas were rejected by the leaders, Victor and his followers formed the group that later became known as the Davidians, and some of them moved into a tract of land on the western outskirts of Waco, Texas, where they built a community called Mount Carmel Center. This became the headquarters of their movement, but ultimately, Victor felt called to move home base to Palestine and establish the Davidic church there. Unfortunately, Victor passed away before making that happen, and in 1955, his wife Florence took control of the Davidian organization. That same year, Benjamin Roden, a follower of Victor's, proclaimed that he believed to be a new message from God and wrote a series of letters presenting it to the Davidians. Benjamin signed these letters, The Branch, believing that to be the new name Jesus had taken to reflect a new stage of his work in the heavenly sanctuary. Those who accepted Benjamin's teachings became known as the Branch Davidians, and the group was split in two. Florence was the leader of the original group, and she prophesied that the world would end in 1959. After the world failed to end, Florence abandoned the group altogether, leaving Benjamin and his followers to take over the Mount Carmel Center. (laughs) So, this is a long line of people predicting the apocalypse. It was not just this one guy, which is what I thought happened. As someone who grew up always hearing the Mm Mayan-like prophecy for the end of the earth being on their birthday, and I think it it was supposedly scheduled for my 21st birthday, I was like, this is some bullshit. (laughs) I'm going out with a bang. (laughs) So, anytime anybody talks about end of the world, I'm like, uh, just like, it hits a, like, sore spot. I'm like, why is it always my birthday? Why is my birthday always such shit? (laughs) Ah, I can't answer any of that for you. (laughs) It is what it is. We gotta blame the Mayans, I guess. I don't know. But... Benjamin Roden passed away in 1978, and at that point, he, like, his wife kind of took over the center. But back to 1981, David recruited his uncle-slash-brother, Kenneth, to move in with him, and they began working in construction, and they spent their off hours recruiting on an Adventist campus 
or going door to door in neighborhoods. In 1983, David began claiming the gift of prophecy. Like, why do all these people think that they know what's gonna happen? Nobody knows what's gonna happen. Some speculated that around this time, David had an ongoing sexual relationship with Lois Roden, which was Benjamin Roden's widow. She was well into her 60s at this time, so a man did not discriminate. I was going to say, he, uh, he, <laughs> he just was like, all right, you like me? You, you, you're giving me attention? Cool. <laughs> you're giving me the go-ahead? I mean, not really the go-ahead, but you're not telling me no? That's this guy. Yeah. That's this guy. So, well into her 60s, like I said, does not discriminate. Which, no shame in your game, but it's also easy to assume that David did this to climb the ladder in the church. David soon began to claim that he was chosen by God to have a child with Lois. Oh my God. Who would be the chosen one. The chosen one. Sir, how, how old's Lois again? She's in her 60s. You want this woman to have a child? Oh, he... He believes that it's God's will, so it's absolutely going to happen. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That same year, 1983, Lois allowed David to begin teaching his own message known as the serpent's root. His teachings also included the practice of, quote, spiritual weddings, which enabled him to bed God-chosen female followers of all ages. You're a pedophile. And a predator, because well, we even if they're know. not young. Well, we already know that he impregnated the 14-year-old, 15-year-old. Yeah. So, yes. This, of course, caused controversy in the group, especially with George Roden, Lois and Benjamin's son, who was supposed to be next in line to take over the group. Things seemed to calm down around Mount Carmel Center after David announced that God had instructed him to marry 14-year-old Rachel Jones. <laughs> Remember, he's like 23 at this time. Like father, like son, I guess. I'm just like, whenever like there's these big, I, I mean, it's not a huge age, age gap, but I'm just like, I remember what I was like. At like 13, 14. And if you were telling me that I'm about to like marry somebody, you don't want that version of me. Not that, no. Not the 14 year old. But also, the 14 year old's gonna be very influenceable and yeah. is gonna just do whatever he says with little thought. So I get it, but I don't wanna get it. Yeah. Her father, Perry Jones was somewhat close to David and gave him permission for the marriage. Good old dad. Mm -hmm. As a lifelong member of the Branch Davidians, Perry was convinced that the federal government posed an oppressive danger to devout Christians. Which is really funny because I feel like the Christians impose (laughs) (laughs) an oppressive danger to my government. Oh my god. To my government. Like there should be a separation of church and state. That's all. I'm yeah. Saying. Don't even get me started on that whole bullshit. <laughs> this was all the calm before the storm when a fire destroyed $500,000 worth of damage. 
George Roden was quick to point the blame at David, who responded saying, quote, No man started that fire. It was a judgment of God, end quote. Okay. George, claiming to have the support of the majority of the group, forced David and his followers off the property at gunpoint. David and his 25-ish followers left the compound and set up camp at Palestine, Texas, which was about 90 miles away from Waco. They lived there for the next two years in buses and tents through rain, sunshine, and probably some snow. David used this time to build his following, recruiting from California, the United Kingdom, Israel, and Australia. He even traveled to Israel when he claimed he had a vision that he was the modern-day Cyrus. I didn't know who that was, so I had to look that up. He's the founder of the first Persian empire known as Cyrus the Great. He was named Messiah for freeing the Jews during the Babylonian captivity. Okay. I was like, I know this name. I know this name. I took so many, like, um, a lot of my friends in college were Jewish, and there were, where I went to school, there was a lot of, like, like, I'm trying, like, I'm trying to think of what they, like, there were classes, I'm trying to think of what, I think they pretty much made them, like, humanities classes and stuff like that, but... It was like intro to Judaism and stuff like that, and yeah, we always we always took him because we loved the teacher and he loved us, so like could literally like not do half the work and still pass the class. Yeah. So <laughs> like it took many things. So like a lot of the things pertaining to Jewish culture and like the Bible stories and stuff like that. I, like, random things will trigger, and I'll be like, oh, I remember this. So that's why you were like, Cyrus. I was like, I know this. I know this. I'm going to start quizzing you on these things now. No, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Now that everybody knows, quiz time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So, that's who Cyrus is. And then, remember Victor, the creator of Davidism? Davidism? Yeah. And how he wanted to start the religion in Palestine. Well, David wanted to do the same, except he felt called to set up camp in Jerusalem. That was until 1990 when David decided he needed to set up home in the U.S. instead of Israel. He claimed the prophecies of Daniel would be fulfilled in Waco and that Mount Carmel Center was the Davidic kingdom. After being exiled to the Palestine camp, David and his followers lived in a prim- lived a primitive existence. I'm sure you did. Like, you were living on buses. <laughs> it was a big old camping spot. When Lois died in 1986, the exiled Davidians wondered if they would ever be able to return to the Mount Carmel Center. In 1987, George Roden exhumed at least one body from the community's cemetery, claiming he was moving the cemetery. That was his excuse for doing this. Oh, God. But David claimed that George had issued a challenge to resurrect the body, and whoever did so would be the new leader of the Branch Davidians. David went to authorities to file charges against George for illegally exhuming a corpse, but he was told that he needed proof such as a photograph of the corpse. Okay. So David jumped at the opportunity to see criminal prosecution of George to get him out of the way. On November 3, 1987, He returned to Mount Carmel Center with seven armed followers. Side note, like, just, this is what their arsenal consisted of. Seven semi-automatic weapons, 
three Ruger rifles, two pump-action shotguns, and several boxes of ammunition. I am all for you having your guns, but why do we feel the need to have, like, such... I never understand the people that feel like they need to have assault, right, like, assault weapons, because I'm like, they're like, somebody's gonna come after me, okay? Last I checked, a handgun can do just as much damage and get the job done. I am not a big fan of guns personally. Like, I I do not want them in my house. My husband feels differently. <laughs> um, but this is another, like, pro-choice issue to me. Yeah. I don't give a fuck what you do with your guns. I just don't want a gun, personally. He's I also feel like if you want to have a gun... There should definitely be some, like, checks into that. Like, I feel like anymore now, you can literally just, a lot of states, you can just go and buy a gun. There doesn't need to be a permit or anything like that. I feel like it should be, like, a driver's license. Yes. I have to pass a permit test and a driver's test to have a license. And don't get me wrong, people drive without licenses, people forget what's on the test and whatnot, but some sort of safety precaution is better than no safety precaution. Yes. So, like I was saying, David jumped at the opportunity to get this handled, and they show up with all of their freaking guns in an alleged attempt to get the photographic proof of the corpse slash slash exhumation. David's group was discovered by George himself immediately upon arrival and a gunfight ensued when the sheriff arrived Roden had already suffered a minor gunshot wound and was pinned behind a tree as a result of the incident David and his followers were charged with attempted murder <laughs> I had no idea any of this even happened like I just know about the big bang at the end yeah so at the trial defense attorney Gary Coker portrayed his clients as law-abiding Christian soldiers. Soldiers. Law-abiding Christian soldiers. Soldiers. Mm -hmm. Okay, my dude. Yep. Each day at court, he brought in large groups of David's followers, particularly mothers, carrying their infants, dressed very neatly, and acting very respectful. But they were also clearly acting strangely as well. And what I mean by it's, that it's given me um oh what's his name? Charles Manson vibes. Like Yes, <laughs> yes. That's a fair assumption to draw here, in my opinion. But the Waco lawyers who were present at this trial still remember the moment David displayed his control over his followers. Oh my god. As they crowded into the spectators' gallery at the start of the trial, the judge declared that anyone in the courtroom who needed to be sworn in as a witness should stand and identify themselves. When there was no response, David's lawyer turned to them, urging them to follow the judge's orders with no success. Then, in a moment of very high drama, David stood, smiling, raised a hand, and he declared, It's all right. You've done nothing wrong. Stand. And at this command, the witnesses stood. Oh my god. It's all right, right, and it's time to leave. (laughs) It's all right, puppets, dance. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's what I envision. <clears throat> David then explained that he went to Mount Carmel Center to uncover evidence of criminal disturbance of a corpse by George. David's followers were acquitted, and in David's case, a mistrial was declared. The Branch Davidians then backed their truck up to the county sheriff's department and watched with satisfaction as deputies loaded it with the dozens of weapons they had seized at Mount Carmel after the shootout. Oh my god. <sighs> That's just so frustrating, especially whenever you know what's coming. Yeah. Because a lot of people pinpoint this as a moment where somebody could have stepped in and changed the outcome of all of this. Yep. Oh, anyways, so this is a quote from a former former cult member, Mark Buns, and he said, You don't have to stretch your imagination too far to appreciate how his followers must have interpreted interpreted that. Good God. (laughs) He had won the verdict, the weapons, and the compound, and in his mind, and in the mind of his people, he must have felt that he was guided by the hand of God. So... A little side note, I have a few side notes, but in this little side note, we're going to talk about George Roden. And in 1989, he murdered Wayman Dale Adair with an axe blow to the skull after Wayman stated his belief that he himself was the true messiah. George claimed the man was sent by David to kill him. So that's something. And at his trial... George was judged insane, and he was confined to a psychiatric hospital at Big Spring, Texas. You don't say. I think that everybody involved in this is a little bit unhinged, but specifically the ones in charge yes. <laughs> are definitely unhinged. Literally, who can be more crazy? So it wasn't surprising that he ended up in a psychiatric hospital. Since George owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center, David and his followers were able to raise the money and reclaim the property as their own. George continued to harass the David faction by filing legal papers while imprisoned, and when David and his followers reclaimed the Mount Carmel Center, they discovered that tenants who had rented from George had left behind a meth lab. (laughs) That just, uh, like, explains even more. Of the story. (laughs) The gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) Which David reported the meth lab to the local police department and asked to have it removed. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) That's the turn I did not expect coming. So, this is the point in the timeline where he actually changes his name. So, Vernon Howell, his original name filed a petition in California. Why not Texas? (laughs) But he filed a a petition in California State Superior Court on May 15, 1990 to legally change his name for, quote, publicity and business purposes, end quote, to David Koresh. On August 28, 1990, Judge Robert Martinez granted the petition. So a little explanation why he chose this name. Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, the Persian king we talked about earlier, and David symbolized a lineage directly to the biblical king David from whom the new Messiah would descend. By taking the name of David Koresh, he was professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David, a messiahic figure carrying out a divinely commissioned errand. 
There's nothing like a white man with confidence. Right. During the five years of his leadership, David transformed the cluster of dilapidated bungalows at Mount Carmel into a fortress-like compound, greatly expanded its weapons arsenal, and began training his followers in military tactics. Why do you need your own soldiers? And it's mostly because he felt like the apocalypse was coming and they needed to defend themselves. I get it. I'm just saying that if I showed up at a church and you say, all right, it's time for the military drills. I would not be sticking around. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm so far out the door, I'm looking like the freaking roadrunner. Yep. I like to work out at the gym, and that's only as of recently. Like, I'm telling you, if I would have showed up to church and they told me I had to work out, (laughs) I would have been gone. Oh. So, David also issued his New Light Declaration, proclaiming that while his male followers would eventually find their perfect mates in heaven, their earthly wives and daughters were reserved exclusively for his sexual gratification and procreation. Yuck. Yup. Another little, like, side story here. Something that I wondered was, like, how do they make money? So, I looked it up. (laughs) Of course. I'm just like, how are they funding all of this? Yeah. If they're all living in this center, and how? How do you have the money to buy the arsenal and, you know, feed all these people? Yeah. So, the entirety of David's inter- enterprise here depended on a steady flow of new members into Waco. Followers who would turn over their income and often their savings to the cult. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. David traveled frequently into the southwestern and western United States and made trips abroad to Britain and Australia seeking new followers. With his dimples, long curly hair, boyish grin, and Texas drawl, he had a sort of innocent vulnerability that drew people in, and David developed an almost uncanny ability to identify prospective followers and then use his easygoing rock and roll manner and encyclopedic knowledge of the scripture to lure prospects to the Waco commune. The 77-acre property had been paid for by the Branch Davidians during the previous 35 years, and operating and capital expenses were provided not only from the sizable contributions of members, but also by the cult's own business enterprises. Business enterprises? (laughs) Yes. What can a cult do to earn money? Well, this cult ran the Mag Bag, which was an automobile repair shop near the compound, But its biggest moneymaker was its thriving trade in guns and ammunition bought from mail order firms and local gun stores that then they would resell those at a profit at like the trade fairs in Texas. So while it's brilliant and it got the money, it also flagged the attention of the government. I'm sure. Which is kind of what we needed, but it it needed to happen sooner than what it did. But oh yeah, hindsight's always 2020. Another problem is David was alleged to have been involved in multiple incidents of physical and sexual abuse of children. His doctrine of the House of David did lead to marriages with both married and single women in the Branch Davidians. This doctrine was based on a purported revelation that involved the production of 24 children by chosen women in the community. These 24 children were to serve as the 24 ruling elders over the millennium after the return of Christ. He's literally building his, prof- his prophecy. Like, 
Mm-hmm. These women, supposedly chosen through this doctrine, included at least one underage girl, Michelle Jones. Does Jones sound familiar to anybody? Because this is the younger sister of his first and only legal wife, Rachel. Okay. Mm-hmm. A six-month investigation of sexual abuse allegations by the Texas Child Protection Services in 1992 failed to turn up any evidence, possibly because the Branch Davidians concealed the spiritual marriage of David to Michelle, assigning a surrogate husband to her, David uh, Thibodeau. Uh-huh. A surrogate husband. A surrogate husband. Because remember, the men in this, in this, yeah, they have to wait until heaven to find their partners. Meanwhile, David can have any and every partner. It's he wants. right. Regarding the allegations of physical abuse, the evidence is less certain. In one wild, widely reported incident, ex-members claimed that David became irritated with the cries of his son Cyrus and spanked the child severely for several minutes on three consecutive visits to the child's bedroom. In a second report, a man involved in a custody battle visited the Mount Carmel Center and claimed to have been claimed to have seen the beating of a young boy with a stick. The government's primary interest in the Branch Davidians at this point was the alleged possession of a potential illegal arms cache on the site. So like I said, they drew attention in the wrong way. Yeah. Finally, the FBI's justification for going after them was valid. So finally, the FBI's justification for forcing an end to the 51-day standoff was predicted on the charge that David was busing children inside the Mount Carmel Center. Allegations had been made that he had fathered children with underage girls in the Branch Davidians, and in the hours that followed the deadly conflagration, Attorney General Janet Reno told reporters, we had specific information that babies were being beaten. However, FBI Director William Sessions publicly denied the charge and told reporters that they had no such information about child abuse inside the Mount Carmel Center. A careful examination of the other ch child abuse charges found the evidence to be weak and ambiguous, casting doubt on the allegation. The allegations of child abuse largely stem from detractors and ex-members. The 1993 Justice Department report cites allegations of child sexual and physical abuse. Legal scholars point out that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, had no legal jurisdiction in the matter of child protection, and these accounts appear to have been inserted by the ATF to inflame the case against David. For example, the account of former Branch Davidian Janine Buns is reproduced in the, AT in the ATF affidavit. Janine claimed that David had fathered at least 15 children with various women and girls and that she had personally delivered seven of those infants. Janine also claimed that David would annul all marriages of couples who joined the group and had exclusive sexual access to the women and girls. Thibodeau, a student of David's, had one of uh, Thibodeau, a student of David's and one of the few to escape the fire that destroyed the compound, states that while he considered David a friend, he certainly was guilty of something. He was either a polygamist or he was guilty of statutory rape. Probably both. I was going to say, probably both, my dude. I'm going to go with both, personally. Later on, David himself, on a tape that he sent to authorities during the attack, we're almost to the attack, I'm going to circle back around, he acknowledged that he had fathered more than 12 children by several wives. 
On March 3, 1993, during negotiations to secure the release of the remaining children, David advised hostage negotiators that, quote, my children are different than those others, end quote, referring to his direct lineage versus those children whom he had not actually fathered. Okay. Actual yuck. <laughs> no child's life is worth more than another child, and that's coming from me. Yeah. <laughs> like, ugh. It's just, ugh. He thought that his blood was more special, and that's just disgusting. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so let's back up a bit here. What attack, what hostage situation? The Waco siege began February 28, 1993, when the ATF attempted to raid the Mount Carmel Center to execute a search warrant. The ensuing gun battle resulted in the death of four ATF agents and six Branch Davidians and injured an additional 16 agents. Shortly after the initial raid, the FBI hostage rescue team took command of the federal operation because the FBI had jurisdiction over incidents involving the death of other federal agents. The negotiating team established contact with Koresh inside the compound. Communications over the next 51 days included telephone exchanges with various FBI negotiators. David himself had been seriously injured by a gunshot. And as the standoff continued, he and his closest male associate, associates negotiated delays so that they could possibly write religious documents, which he said he needed to complete before his surrender. I always forget that, like, this was such a long situation because the most, like, famous, like, I guess, images or video you see is always, like, the tanks rolling in and that. Mm-hmm. Like, and it just seemed like it went so quick. No, it lasted 51 days. Yeah. The FBI negotiators treated the situation as a hostage crisis but they also used a variety of tactics to breach the compound, including playing agonizingly loud music on speakers 24-7 in an attempt to induce sleep deprivation in the members of the Branch Davidians. To me, this reminds me of the, uh, what is it, the Panama Canal or whatever, when our army flew in and played rock and roll music. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. My stepdad was a part of that, so that's why I know about it. (laughs) I was just like, could you imagine, like, if you lived close to this thing and you just have the freaking FBI playing music obnoxiously loud? I'd be like, shut the fuck up. I mean, that was kind of the beauty of their whole center was that they were so far away from everybody. So hopefully the FBI wasn't disturbing other other people. people. Hopefully. The FBI assembled what has been called the largest military force ever fathered against a civilian suspect in American history. And this is what you were talking about. So all in all, this is what showed up. There were 10 Bradley tanks, two Abrams tanks, four combat engineering vehicles, 668 agents, in addition to six U.S. Customs officers, 15 U.S. Army personnel, 13 members of the Texas National Guard, 31 Texas Rangers, 131 officers from the Texas Department of Public Safety, 17 officers from the McLennan County Sheriff's Office, and 18 Waco police officers for a total of 899 people for a domestic army. Right. 899 people. I just... Did somebody call out? 
Right. Was it supposed to be an even 900? <laughs> yeah, see, I know that this is, like, a big deal, but, um, I'm not feeling too good today. I have to make a joke at this point, <laughs> just because, can you imagine right now, 2022, if this were to happen? Oh, my God. And this whole situation is why a lot of things changed in the FBI and, like, how we handle negotiations and things like that. But holy shit. Like, 12 tanks, four combat vehicles, and 899 people. Yeah. I'd shit my pants if I saw that rolling up. I'd be like, we're done. Yeah. (laughs) Call it quits. Call it quits now. (laughs) The siege of the Mount Carmel Center ended on April 19, 1993, when U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno approved recommendations of FBI officials to proceed with a final advance in which the Branch Davidians would be removed. In an attempt to flush David out of the stronghold, the FBI resorted to pumping tear gas into the compound with the aid of one of the combat engineer vehicles. Tear gas. Yeah. And remember, there are children in this compound. In the course of the advance, the Mount Carmel Center caught fire under circumstances that remained disputed. Barricaded inside the building, 79 Branch Davidians perished in the ensuing blaze. 21 of those victims were children under the age of 16. A single moment during the siege still haunts FBI negotiators. It came when they heard the cheery voice of six-year-old Melissa Morrison, the daughter of a cult member. She came on the phone and said, quote, I want to come out, end quote. Then David takes the phone from her, and the agents ask him to release the child. He put the phone aside, and the agents hear him telling the girl, You tell them you're not going to come out until I talk to Robert Gonzalez, referring to an ATF undercover agent. Moments later, the child's voice again comes on the line. She tells the FBI agents she did not want to come out. We have to talk to Robert first. And Melissa was never heard from again. No. Mm Mm-hmm. David, then 33, died of a gunshot wound to the head during the course of the fire. It's unknown whether he committed suicide or if he was killed, and according to the FBI, Steve Schneider, David's right-hand man, who probably realized that he was dealing with a fraud, at what point? At what point did he realize that? But the FBI thinks that he shot David and then committed suicide with the same gun. The medical examiner reported 21 people, including five children under the age of 14, had been shot, and a three-year-old had been stabbed in the chest. Oh. hmm David is buried at Memorial Park Cemetery in Tyler, Texas, in the, quote, Last Supper section. Several of his albums were released, including Voice of Fire in 1994, and in 2004, David's 1968 Chevrolet Camaro, which had been damaged during the raid, sold for $37,000 at auction and is now owned by Ghost Adventures host Zach Baggins. Oh, Zach. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) So, a lot of people believe that media coverage is to blame here. Uh, Media coverage almost uniformly referred to the Branch Davidians as a cult and was unsympathetic not just to David, but to his followers as well. A Newsweek article published during the ongoing siege uses as its closing kicker a quote from the estranged son of one of the Branch Davidians, suggesting that the inhabitants of the Mount Carmel compound wanted to die. 
Quote, they are waiting to get zapped up to heaven where they'll be transformed and fight a war where they get to kill all their enemies. The only people that may be sorry are the parents who had to let their children be released. End quote. The prevailing narrative presumed that all inhabitants of the Branch Davidian community were crazy and that therefore any violent means used against them would be justified. The story of Waco is without a doubt a tragedy, but it's also much more complicated than a story about a cult. Indeed, some of the few survivors of the siege have expressed anger with the way they feel the official accounts of the siege removed Branch Davidian's agency, portraying them as victims rather than believers. Yeah. The story of Waco is also the story of disagreements over religious freedom, the rights and boundaries of the federal government, and what it means to be a legitimate religion. For some, the Waco tragedy was the foundation of a different narrative, a story of unlawful government overreach and of the consequences of federal aggression. On the political far right in particular, Waco became something of a rallying cry for those who saw the federal government as a threat. For example, Timothy McVeigh, carried out his 1995 no. Oklahoma City bombings in part as a direct response to Waco, where he had been an eyewitness at the siege. And that is my story of David Koresh. I definitely could have gone more into, like, details of the siege and whatnot, but I feel like that's what a lot of the documentaries do. Yeah. And I didn't really know a lot about David before this so it was interesting to learn about his childhood and what kind of led him to where he ended up yeah it's easy to sit on the outside and be like how does one ever end up there how do you get yourself in that position but reading about his like fucked up childhood and like how he kept turning to pretty much there were warning signs and it's like it's sad that you know it took so long for like somebody like basically something to happen yeah it's just but it's easy for it to take so long whenever a group of people are like sequestered and take care of each other and protect each other yeah and that's what they felt like was right so once again hindsight's twenty twenty. it's a very sad story and all we can do is learn from it and move on. Yep. But I guess that being said, we'll kick you off to the last call. Hopefully it's a little more of a <laughs> up what like pick me up <laughs> from yeah. this. So uh yeah, we'll see you there. Alright, welcome to another last call. And for today's last call, I figured I'd try to keep it somewhat Waco um, adjacent, I guess you could say. <laughs> I didn't know what to do, and I was like, yeah, let's look up and see if we can find something. So, if you're ever wanting to visit Waco for yourself, whether you just want to, you know, maybe see where this all went down, here are some things to do that... Um, this article says, 12 experiences you can have only in Waco, the heart of Texas. I would not call Waco the heart. Nope. But it is what it is. Also, don't know if I want to be going to Texas anytime soon. Look, 
just because the government's fucked up doesn't mean you can't have a good time in Houston or Austin or Dallas. Yeah. I would still go. So, the first thing, right, (laughs) the first thing that um, this article suggests you do is visit Magnolia Market, which, uh, like, that kind of piques your interest. Um, It's probably because HGTV fixer-upper Chip and Joanna Gaines are kind of the whole, like, masterminds behind this place. Uh, It says, if you're a fan of the show, a stop by Magnolia Market should be an essential part of your trip to Waco. Nestled at the base of two historic silos and now covering two acres, Magnolia Market is a... It's a home decor wonderland. They use a very big word that um, I'm struggling with. So... (laughs) It's a big home decor, like, market place basically uh, it says come here and you'll find fetching accent pieces and wall decorations rustic kitchenware candles and plenty of inspiration for the inside and outside of your abode so if you ever have a um, renovation you know kickstart or whatnot like you just suddenly want to redo your whole house. Make a trip to Waco. <laughs> Another one it says, enjoy a taste of Texas. Whether you're a craft beer drinker, wine lover, or fan of the hard stuff, you'll find something local to tickle your taste buds in Waco. If you prefer beer, the tap room of Bear Arms Brewing is the place to be. For wines, you have, like, you have the... Uh, Valley Mills Vineyards and not to leave out like other stuff you like basically if you're not a beer or wine drinker they do have about I'm gonna guess it's pronounced Balcones Distilling and they're like basically award-winning bourbons, rums, and whiskeys. I try it out, but I'm also like bourbons and whiskeys anymore. I struggle with. Same. <clears throat> I'd rather drink clear all day. Yeah. I was a Jack Daniels fan like most of my college. Like that was my go-to, Jack and Coke. But, uh, yeah. Can't do that too much anymore. Um, it does say, tour Texas travel tip. Try the brew bus tour. A safe and easy way to explore Waco's best breweries, pubs, wineries, and cocktail lounges. Sign me up. (laughs) I will go for that. We will go. (laughs) Uh, Another thing. Tour a true Texas icon. So in Atlanta, you have the Coke, um, like World of Coke, which mm-hmm. is so fun to go to. You just got to be aware of when you get to taste like all the Cokes that there are some that taste 
god awful. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it is it was really fun to go to. I met the Coca-Cola bear. I got my picture taken with him. But I for someone that is not like a Coke drinker, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. But if you go to Waco, it is where Dr. Pepper originated from. I did not know that. Right? I was like, I love me some Dr. Pepper, and I did not know this. Uh, it says, see where the magic has happened for more than 100 years at the Dr. Pepper Museum. Located within a historic 1906 bottling building in downtown Waco. So I'm guessing it's probably like kind of World of Coke where you get to kind of see some of the history and stuff and maybe even try some of the Dr. Pepper because it says quench your thirst with a tall cool glass of Dr. Pepper at Frosty's Soda Shop in the East Wing Building. So it's free to go there as long as you like pay admission I guess like if you don't want to do the tour you can go there in mm-hmm. itself but you have to pay so I would I would be interested in going I do like me some Dr. Pepper want to know what the 23 flavors are I'm not a fan of Dr. Pepper but I'll go to Waco with you <laughs> another one it says hang 10 in Waco Waco might be the last place that comes to mind when you think of surfing that's where Waco surf comes in Book a stay here and you'll feel like you're just steps away from the beach. I mean, I have my own beaches here. Mm -hmm. But it does say that it also has the world's longest lazy river, which I am down for. Hook me up with a drink and send me down the lazy river. (laughs) That sounds like paradise. Yes. Uh, You can also... Marvel at massive mammoths in Waco. Tens of thousands of years ago, herds of enormous mammoths and predators like tigers roamed the verdant hills of what we now know as Waco. So there is a Waco Mammoth National Monument. Which I think it would be cool to see because like pictures can only do it justice. It'd be cool to, like, in real life, see what a mammoth, like, size-wise was kind of like. I envision, like, four elephants. (laughs) (laughs) Say howdy to exotic critters. Um, You have, it's basically a... um, Park Zoo is what it says. Cameron Park Zoo. There's lemurs, giraffes, bald eagles, um, exotic creatures, stuff like that. Um, Situated on 52 acres of wooded terrain minutes away from downtown Waco. The zoos showcase uh, hundreds of animals from around the world. I always do love me a good zoo. Another thing to do, explore Waco Downtown Cultural District. 
browse art galleries, admire massive colorful murals, shop at boutique clothing and home furnishing stores, and savor a taste of locally sourced cuisine at a -a one-of-a-kind restaurant. I love, like, downtowns that actually, like, do cool stuff like that. Like, Mobile tries. They really do. Sorry if you hear a poppy. We're trying out the microphones in Sloan's room and trying not to uh, have to put the dogs in their kennels. And Codex decided he needs to be right here. He has Velcroed to his Aunt Trish. <laughs> Earlier she was like laying down on top of him and he was just passed out to the world. Happy as could be. <laughs> so he, love, he likes being smushed. He loves it. He's a weirdo. <laughs> um, another thing for Waco, it says get outdoors. Basically they have like lakes and stuff and they try to, you know push their um like boating and stuff like that which always fun another thing savor Waco's dynamic dining scene um juicy steaks savory brisket succulent grass-fed burgers and divine cupcakes I mean Texas in general like me and Sloan love our food network in that, and anytime, like, Diners, uh, Drive-Ins and Dives is, like, one of my favorite shows, and anytime they end up in Texas, it just seems like no matter where they go, there's just so much good food. Amen. So, like, I would so love to go and just try out some of this stuff. Another thing to do is another shopping center type thing. And this one is the Findery or Simple Simply Irresistible. Um it's basically a like they're a bunch of like antique art and boutique clothing store like it's just kind of like a hodgepodge. It's like a, what am I trying to think? Like a marketplace, um, like a flea market almost. That's what I'm trying to think. It's like this big building that's just a mix of different shops and stuff. There's also a spice village, uh, a collection of 60 eclectic shops stocked with a spectacular array of amazing accessories, luscious luxuries, and other fantastic finds. So, there... I mean, we love New Orleans going down more towards, like, the... was it the French market? Mm-hmm. Love going there and just looking at those different shops, so... I imagine we could have some fun there. Oh, I I know for sure. My cousin went to college at Baylor, which ah. is in Waco. Yeah. And she, her and my, like, aunt and uncle and cousins, they all lived in Austin growing up. So we would go to Austin, and you pass through Waco the way that we went from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so I've passed through Waco, and I've, like, stopped to see my cousin's dorm and, like, things like that, but I've never... 
hung out in Waco. But it sounds like fun. I would love to go. You can also experience some live music in Waco. I mean, it's the South. I feel like anywhere you go, you're going to come across some unique live music. Um, it, ha- it lists like a theater and um, it, this place called Backyard Waco. But yeah, just like pretty much just talks about like their live music scene in that which again another thing like I love just kind of stumbling across random things I mean hell when we went for Sloan's birthday to uh Pensacola <laughs> we stumbled across a little mini like EDM festival <laughs> so, so much fun yes. so we're always up for that this obviously it like lists like blues and jazz and stuff like that which I wouldn't really think of Waco. I would think more Memphis, but still. Hey, if you know good music, you know good music. Yep. And then the last thing it talks about is just like the a, the Homestead Craft Village, which it's just it looks like it's just um like a place that they make. Yeah, it's like wood furniture and distinctive stoneware. Which, seeing those things made is always so, like, cool and interesting. And I don't understand how someone can do that. (laughs) Because I am so not artistic. (laughs) So, anytime I'm like, dude, you just made, like, this, like, amazing, like, piece of furniture that I would have been like, yep. This, I could think it, but I can't, I can't do it. I can, yeah. Well, I say that, but if I, I am very stubborn in pursuits of my hobbies. <laughs> but, that is what this um, little article I found lists as, like, some experiences that you can, you know, kind of do if you visit through Waco which they all sound real interesting like it would be worth a trip my sister does my one sister does live in Oklahoma so you know if I would ever go visit I would have to pass through Texas anyways I don't know if I'd go through Waco but it could be fun but if you ever do decide that you want to go to Waco and possibly see um, where this whole Waco cult took place, there's more things to do there. Less um, crime-induced, I guess. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but definitely, if you have been to Waco or you live in that area, let us know. Maybe we missed some things. But yeah, that's my last call. Like I said, wanted to try to make it a little, uh... Enlightening. Enlightening and, like, also close to Waco, I guess. And what better than to talk about what to do there. So, I guess with that being said, be sure to check us 
out on all of our socials. You got Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all that fun stuff. It's all tequila she wrote. You also have our email where you can send us case suggestions, cocktail suggestions, anything like that. You just want to say, hey, love what you're doing. Love to see it. You know, that is um, tequila she wrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon. The easiest way to find us is to go to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. You can also find it through the links in our profile. There you can get for as little as $2 a month, a bonus monthly episode, ad-free episodes, and then from there we just have tiers, different things. I do a Ruining Paradise segment every month. Trish does a Haunted segment every month. And yeah, so check us out there if you're not sick of us over here. (laughs) Thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep.